This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight, you want to do your uh, line or no? Hello, cuddies. Yes, we're finally discussing it. The Silence of the Lambs. It's only taken us 20 episodes, and you've been repeating that since I was a small child. So we'll just start from the top here, and this movie has had a lot of cultural impact um, over time. Um, we uh, have had many reference points to it uh, over our lifetime. You've famously repeated the Chianti line I don't know how many times. You've done Hello, Clarice, for as long as I can remember. And our finishing line, if you haven't figured it out by now, uh, to everybody listening, um, is from this movie. So yeah. uh, let me just start. Uh, I This has had a, a bit of family lore to it because uh, you've specified I don't know how many times that you would never let mom watch this. Um, I really don't think it's as bad as you had built it up originally. Um, and it's only the second time I've seen it. But what is your relationship to this movie? Okay, when you were a baby, we lived in Beloit, Wisconsin, and we shared a common driveway with our next door neighbors. Um, and uh, our neighbor came over and he said, hey, would you like to borrow this book? I just finished it. It is just absolutely intense. Okay, Silence of the Lambs. I'm not a big fiction reader to begin with, and I'm definitely not into horror or sus that type of suspense. Okay, but I started reading it, and I couldn't put it down, and I think I finished it in two days. Um, and, you know, when the movie came out, your mother said, no way in hell am I going to go and watch that with you. So I never saw the movie until, oh, I bet it was four or five years later um, when she was gone for a weekend on a business trip and I put you guys all to bed. Um, I think it was been before Sarah was born or maybe just after she was born. And I watched it. So that was the first time I had seen the film. Now, the book is much more graphic and much more intense than the movie. The movie had to, let's put it this way. If the movie portrayed what the book was, it would have had an X rating for violence. So There's that's why they couldn't do violence. Everything. Huh? I thought an X rating only came for like suggestive behavior or like full out nudity or no. sex scenes. No, an X rating can also be given for violence. In fact, several films, uh, one of which was one I'm sure we'll do at some point, Scarface uh, by Brian De Palma with Al Pacino, was originally given an X rating for violence, and they had to calm it down a bit and reduce the amount of drugs he used 
from about eighty percent of the movie <laughs> to about to about sixty percent of the movie. Yes. Oh God, I can't imagine what that movie would be if they had toned it up. No wonder everybody's always looking for the, like the director's cut. <laughs> yes. God. Okay. Anyway, um, I watched this movie a few years back uh, while I was still in college. So probably about eight, nine years ago um, with some roommates of mine. It had been, you know, one of those films that everybody said you needed to see, but uh, I'd never gotten around to it. I was, I'm not a big fan of horror films. Uh, I'll say that straight out. I've watched a couple, um, you know, the, the certain Hitchcock thrillers, um, and, uh, uh, this and some of the other ones, like I've kind of become a bit desensitized to some of it. Um, but, uh, we're, we're eventually going to cover more of the like, um, deeper horror genre with Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street and certain other movies. Um, you know, Rosemary's Baby, um, the one, those types of things which I'm sure I'm never going to um, watch with the lights off and not in broad daylight. So, uh, but as far as this movie, I think for what it is, by comparison to a lot of the stuff that's on TV even right now, um, this isn't really that violent or that particularly scary. This is much more of a thriller than it is a horror movie. Um, Especially with you know, current filming and editing. I think it's comparable to the movie we did last week, Zodiac, um, in kind of its essence. Um, and there, there isn't, since there are no scenes, somebody um, brutally murdered on screen per se, other than, I guess, the, the scene where, uh, spoiler alert, Hannibal Lecter escapes. Um, and that whole sequence, even that, um, is really not that big a deal by comparison to what we built it up to as, or what you built it up as when I was a kid. So I was afraid to watch this movie for a long time. Now it's like, why was I ever afraid to watch it? Now, to be fair, had I watched this when I was 11, I wouldn't have slept for a while. If I watched it when I did when I was 20, then it's not a big deal. So I, I would place it within that context. Uh, before we move on you i can't believe that you who used to think the unabomber was sleeping in your mother's office closet okay he was they just happened to catch him he could teleport between my mother's office and his shack out in the middle of wyoming it was in montana but okay okay fair enough but what's the difference between wyoming and montana other than a few more mountains well, that's a big difference, but okay. Anyway, the point being is is I I still visualize everything from the book because not only did I read Silence of the Lamb, I read Red Dragon and I read Hannibal Rising, or no, I guess Hannibal, that was the one. Hannibal Rising is in the early years that I never did see. Um, see the movie or read the book. But um, I had been, and the Red Dragon um, was with Ray Fiennes in uh, part of the plot, 
And uh, I watched that with one of our exchange students, which every time I did the Hello Carice line, it would freak her out. So I could do, just come up behind her while she was sitting any place and do that. And she'd like, Bleh! all right. So to give the background and the context for the audience, Jodie Foster stars as Clarice Starling, a top student at the FBI's training academy. Jack Crawford, played by Scott Glenn, a perfect fat guy, uh, wants Clarice to interview Dr. Hannibal Lecter, Anthony Hopkins, a brilliant psychiatrist who is also a violent psychopath, serving life behind bars for various acts of murder and cannibalism. Crawford believes that Lecter may have insight into a case and that Starling, as an attractive young woman, may be just the bait to draw him out. Uh, so uh, I will also, uh, this is the recognition portion of this. This is one of three movies to win the big five. Picture director for Jonathan Demme, actor Anthony Hopkins, actress Jodie Foster, and in this case, adapted screenplay. There are only two other movies to do so, uh, both of which we will cover in the history of this podcast it happened one night the best picture winner from 1934 and one flew over the cuckoo's nest from 1975 uh this was also on the afi's uh 100 years 100 movies from 1997 uh, list at number 65 it was the number five on their 100 years 100 thrills it was or clarice starling was their number six hero hannibal lecter was their number one villain um, and this was number 21 overall movie quote of all time. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans, nice Chianti. Uh, and it finally ended up on the uh, 10th anniversary edition, the Redux, if you will, uh, at number 74 on the AFI's final list. So this has a huge pedigree as far as movies go. Um, this is the only one in the quote-unquote horror genre uh, really to ever be recognized by the cat. Um, I would argue that there are much bigger acts of violence and horror in films that would come after this in the 90s, um, notably two Spielberg films um, that one got close and the other one did win Best Picture in both Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. But um, ultimately... Uh, this is kind of noted as being one of the few that kind of transcended its genre uh, in order to um, get to uh, recognition by the Oscars. I don't think we're at a point right now where a movie like this would have won Best Picture or currently, um, unless it had like a, a really um, diverse cast. Um, I will mention that is one of the few things about this movie that really has not aged well. Uh, there is nobody that's not white in this movie. Except the author. Thomas Harris <laughs> was an African-American. I see. All right. So the question we usually ask at this point, what is this movie about? Um, for Starling overcoming her fears and doubts, uh, to achieve a goal, um, the movie in general is a understanding of what 
causes or what can result from mental illness or what can cause mental illness. So I, I had an insidious and brilliant serial killer aids an equally brilliant up-and-coming FBI student in catching the FBI's current obsession. I think that's more of a summation portion of it. Um, you could say that uh, an, a naive um, FBI student um, overcomes her demons through an unlikely source. I think that's another way of putting it, but ultimately she develops this weird bond with Hector in order to catch somebody else that um, they, they don't currently understand. So, okay. I mean, a lot of this movie, and that's that's I think the part that makes uh, the difference. This isn't a regular like detective story or even some of the uh, Hitchcock thrillers that like it's a tense moment because of the action that's going on. A lot of this movie is um, within the mind of the action. Um, a lot of the best scenes are lived either through Hopkins or uh, Foster or Ted Levine's minds and trying to get inside what makes them who they are. I mean, they don't delve into it a lot. I mean, it's kind of a throwaway line. It's going to be one of my nominees later, but they basically allude to the fact that Buffalo Bill, uh, played by Ted Levine, is basically the way he is because um, he was abused in his early years and he hates his own identity. As such, he's trying to go through his own metamorphosis, and this is a means to that end. Yes. In fact, um, they were working, or they did the uh, Hannibal Rising movie. Um, they went back, and Thomas Harris wrote the book and the screenplay for the fourth installment, explaining how Hannibal got to be Hannibal, and apparently um, the uh, he obviously worked with professionals and coming up with this scenario but apparently as a small child his uh, sister was murdered by Nazis and uh, was eaten in front of him um, by these Nazis and so he went into a um, psychotic um, state couldn't speak was so traumatized and this is the result jeez Okay, so we'll get into some of the uh, categories. Um, who did you have down as your best performer? Um, uh, w without a doubt, it was uh, uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins. Sir Philip Anthony Hopkins is correct. I honestly, you know, for as well as everybody else does their part, and I think... Eight, you know, this movie has across the board great acting jobs. Um, he takes it like so much further than everybody else in this movie. Uh, he is so insidious, um, chilling, uh, and yet somewhat charming, weirdly enough. Uh, 
and that initial scene, I turned to you while we were watching the movie on Sunday, and I said specifically, he is so fucking good in that scene. Like, you know, they do all of those, like, theater work drama scenes. How is that one scene not a part of regular drama class? It is a two-person dialogue, and it is just, like, brilliant. You have the ability to do just about anything you want with those characters and really make it your own. And But he, his essence, because he's terrifying and yet you're sucked into his brilliance at the same time. It is so intangible, the quality of that scene. <laughs> yeah, he had more ability to... Uh, convey an emotion or a thought by just the uh, uh, intensity of his stare than he did by anything he said. Well, and the way that they reveal the scene as they're going along and, um, you know, slowly letting him linger out from the back or uh, the way they, if during that one sequence, it's not in that scene, but it's in a, a the second scene of him and Starling where they just kind of picture his eyes for a little bit. And you you get so much emoting from that. But it's just, it's one of those things. He just is so verifiably brilliant. And I have to say, though, it is enhanced by how well Jodie Foster makes herself, like, trying to appear strong and fight back but you can definitely see like the nervousness there because she's equally as terrified as the rest of us. And I mean, she finishes the scene by walking outside and like sobbing uncontrollably because of just how um, intense that entire ordeal is to go face to face with this guy who can get in your head simultaneously and yet, you know, if he got within any physical distance of you, could rip you apart. It, it's just, it, it's one of those things. And the way they build up that character for those, like, fifth, first 15, 20 minutes, just getting to that scene, before they even let you get an inclination of who he is, the way that she walks down that hallway, the way that they talk about him and lay out all of the rules before anybody can even be seen uh, by him, um, you know, and all of his cellmates or the people next to him, you know, you're you're expecting this just ridiculous monster, and yet there's a certain element of it there's that's charm, and you're still sucked in at the same time. I, I just, I honestly probably. Uh, could go on about that for quite a while and repeat myself, uh, you know, quite often here, but I don't know. It's just, it's, it is the indelible moment. Yes. It was clearly, it was clearly an opportunity for them to, the anticipation is part of the buildup. The the part that's not seen but discussed, you know, I mean, there was nothing in there other than the one scene where he escapes, where he, the level of his terror 
is uh, revealed. But I mean, the fact of, you know, they hold up a picture that you can't see it of a woman who apparently um, was attacked because he had gotten access to a pen and they had to uh, rebuild her face. Well, as he was like, he pulled her into himself and ate her tongue. Like, that's how you introduce the, because again, this movie is an intellectual thriller. It gets inside your head as much as anything else to do with this movie. Almost none of the huge pieces of this are visually violent, but everything has to do with, can we uh, make this terrifying um, to how you think about it? You know, this guy is savage. And yet he is equally brilliant and can just bore through you and profile you like nobody else. Well, it's the imagery or the perception that drives the reality. And I remember, you know, another film of some similar ilk um, would be Psycho. And you can ask uh, 50 people who have seen the movie Psycho, and I bet you 40 of them will say that there is a scene where Janet Lee is stabbed. Okay? Jan- there is never a knife that enters Janet Lee's body. You never see a piercing. You never see a wound. It shows the knife coming up and the movement forward, and it shows Janet Lee lying in the tub with the blood twirling down the drain. It's all camera angles. It's sound by the music and uh, that sets it. There's never actual violence shown. But yet most people believe that it did take place. Same way here. The anticipation of the violence exceeded what was really there and brought terror to a level that was not actually portrayed in the film. And it's just the way, again, he first comes on screen, he walks up, and it's an innocent conversation to start with, Um, her asking about his drawings and such. But there's still a chill factor because you're just waiting for him to, like, bore into your head as well as hers. And I I just can't see anybody... uh, outperforming Hopkins in this. I know that's where we started, so we should probably wrap back around, but it's undeniably the best performance of this movie. And he's gone on to do some other things that I I really enjoy, and he's been a good, frankly, character actor for a long time. Um, He's never really been a starring vehicle, per se, um, since this. But this, this one role he hit an absolute masterpiece um, and master class. So uh, who is your best minor performer? Um, I, I liked Scott Glenn. Okay. Um, he, um, he came across as being highly professional, highly intellectual, but to some extent, protective and caring and all the things. There was a soft element to what should be a very high-profile, hard-line FBI guy, 
or or agent? Um, you know, I know that's how he's supposed to be portrayed, but there are elements, and it's set up that he's not exactly a father figure. He's more of a daddy figure. I I, I don't want to like get it confused, but there's like a weird sexual element that's clearly there throughout most of the film. And he seems through the current light, maybe a little bit more misogynistic, but that's just my, in my, um, how I saw it, maybe not how they intended it. So I'll, I'll let that one go. But, uh, I had Ted Levine, uh, honestly, you know, and and again, well, you and I know, knew him best, uh, for his starring role on, um, the show Monk for years, where he was pretty straight-laced and he was just kind of a, a police captain and he was a normal guy and whatever else. In this one, it's so out of the ordinary. He has to go to all of these other lengths. He has to do all of these weird um, pieces, but make them seem within the character and not be... Like, there, there's a very, very fine margin for where he could play this character credibly because it could be over the top or it could be underdone very, very, very easily. And somehow he plays that margin where it's terrifying for what he's going to do and what you expect him to do. And you find him weird and creepy and yet oddly sympathetic. Um, there, there are elements of, sympathy that I feel for the character that because of how he's portraying it, even in weird scenes, like where he's talking about whether he'd be attractive to somebody else, whether they would want to have sex with him. Um, you know, there, there are certain elements that come out of that where you're just, well, yeah, I understand. I mean, he did conclude that he would have sex with himself and he didn't have to go to all that trouble in order to do that. Um, but well sure but i i just think that there was like i said with that level of a fine margin and the extents that he had to go um i i understand why the current trend in hollywood especially for good actors is to either play villains or anti-heroes because there's just so much more to work with they're so complicated and layered and you can make these characters larger than life and uh, by that token, you know, uh, he did an excellent job with it, at least as far as I uh, did, or uh, I thought. So, um, most charismatic award. Uh, I had Anthony Hopkins. I frankly don't think it's any surprise. I, I, again, you know, I don't think anybody was truly trying to be charismatic in this movie, but the way he just emotes draws you into wanting to have him in almost every scene if you can. So yeah. I've given very enough. Much. Of very, very much. What, who did you have down? Hopkins. Cause I mean, um, I mean, uh, he was just so far and away above everything. If Hopkins does not do this role the way he does, this does not win best picture. Jodie Foster does not win Best Actress. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, he carried the performance. It was, you know, it was like the, you know, you can say all you want about um, how great a quarterback is in a Super Bowl, but he wins the MVP because of his offensive line and maybe his running back helping carry the the role. Um, it's not by him alone, and that, but by the same token, the rest of the film was not by them or really. It was him doing the heavy lifting, and I think everybody else contributing. To a certain degree, um, and maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but I think other than that final sequence where there's the confrontation with Buffalo Bill after Lecter has escaped, um, that seems like it's a um, stitching between scenes of Hopkins. And, like, all of the big major action is in those scenes. And everything in between there is just a transition to get to the next scene with Hopkins. Yes. Like, there are very few instances where you could really point out, but most of the action in in this. And that's why, like, there are very long scenes when it comes to this movie. I had a hard time um, trying to separate out certain... Uh, pieces for our next category on best scene just because you know like the the few scenes with Lecter he's in them for or you could basically categorize a scene as 10 to 15 minutes sometimes of this and it's what a two-hour movie I think yes so um like that first meeting alone is probably about 10 minutes of the movie just by itself right there um you know, and the next scene and the next scene and the next scene, uh, the final confrontation and that whole um, piece is about a half an hour. But um, even so, there are just longer scenes in this movie than uh, were usual. But by that same token, um, I couldn't find this, but I want to say that Hopkins has the record for the best winner or the best uh, actor nom or winner to have the fewest minutes of actual camera time in a movie. I would put that against uh, Marlon Brando from the Godfather. Yeah, I think I, if I remember right, the amount of time he is actually on camera in the film is, you know, it's something like, like 12 minutes or something like that of actual camera time. I, I remember reading this someplace and I could not find it when we were uh, doing our, our prep work for this. But I, I want to say that that's, you know, he, he has the least amount of camera time for any Academy Award winner. So, uh, yes, he is actually only in the movie 16 minutes. Yes. But, uh he is not the least amount of anybody running. So just a short list. I just did a quick Google search, but um, 15 minutes for Anne Hathaway and Les Miserables. Uh, David Niven uh, won an Oscar for Less Time in Separate Tables in 1958. Ingrid Bergman had only 14 minutes, 18 seconds in Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, Ruby D may or won a supporting Oscar nominee or supporting Oscar for uh, American Gangster for only 10 minutes on screen. 
Um, Gloria Graham, The Bad and the Beautiful from 1952, 9 minutes, 32 seconds. And the rest of it won't load. But even so, like, yeah. 16 minutes of a of a two-hour movie. He was in it one-eighth of the film. Yeah. Which, it doesn't feel that way. Like, you no. would have had to specifically clock it. But, like, the, and I think that's, so it's, how to put it? He may be only visible in 16 minutes of the film, but his effect and the way he's talked about or scenes involving him are longer than that. Because, you know, yeah, there are jump cuts or whatever else, and you focus in on other characters here and there. Uh, I can't imagine that a couple of those scenes that uh, have him in them um, aren't longer, even though he may not be pictured immediately. Sure. I mean, the whole escape scene, he's not even pictured for the most part. It's them chasing who they think it is more than anything else. So, yes. All right. So best scene. I only have a few uh, to really nominate because, again, these are kind of long sequences and I just treat them kind of as one scene. So the first one we've talked about ad nauseum already. The first meeting with Lecter himself. Um, Number two. The finding of the storage garage and uh, the uh, preserved head, if you will. Again, spoilers for anybody. Um, Then uh, Clarice coming back and offering Lecter a deal. The uh, figuring out, and I honestly thought this was one of the better work-ins. Like sometimes you get um, the title of the film so easily stated in some throwaway line inside the film that it's like, ugh, you you just made it cheaper. This actually worked in the whole Silence of the Lambs portion of this um, in that one scene that her entire goal is to, um, you know, work through her own levels of PTSD uh, by hopefully solving this case and protecting the innocent. So, uh, number four, um, Lecter escapes. It's a long sequence that has to do with a lot of, um, violent action and the cops trying to chase him down, but, um, ultimately not prevailing. Um, he's gotten away in a fairly brilliant, but, um, for more modern moviegoers, it's probably a little bit anticipated at this point. Um, and then finally the final confrontation with Buffalo Bill that's set up by that, um, you know, sequence at the very point where um, you think they're going to ca- or go after Buffalo Bill and they're finally going to catch him in Chicago. And all of a sudden, you know, they switch or play that uh, switch to Rue on you. And it's actually Clarice has showed up um, at Buffalo Bill's house and somehow doesn't call for backup, doesn't figure out how to, like, take care of a whole bunch of things. She just goes in by herself and ends up winning the final confrontation. So, uh, any others you'd like to add? No. Which one did you have down as your best scene? Meeting of Lecter. Yeah. And honestly, I had it as my favorite scene, and I had it as the most indelible. Like, I I don't want to 
throw out the other scenes, so I will nominate that final confrontation with Buffalo Bill for the sake of it, because I do think that was a really good and well-constructed sequence. But, again, that scene by itself probably won them the Oscars. Mm-hmm. So did you have anything else down for favorite scene or most indelible moment? No. I mean, yeah, I, I think we've probably cut that one to death and I, I don't we don't need to keep going too much more on it. But, um, yeah, I, I I don't know how much more we could say. So that's a good place to uh, take a quick break. We'll be right back. And welcome back. All right. So uh, that takes us into best line. And there are quite a few of them. We've already repeated several of them. Um I'm going to save – so first off, off the top, you already asked me this, and we've had troubles with this, but funniest line is not something we're going to do tonight. Uh, this movie doesn't really have funny lines per se, um, and we it, I have a different honorable mention that I won't mention in the rest of the best lines uh, because it's our s- signature sign-off line. Um, I'll leave that uh, for the end of this, but all right. So best line, uh, I have a couple of these, and one of them is a little bit longer sequence, and it's frankly, because uh, I think you have to provide the whole uh, context of that monologue or that back and forth in order to get that final sequence of line um, that's listed by the AFI as one of their top lines. So um, number one, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, what a naughty boy he is. Do you know why he's called Buffalo Bill? Please, tell me. The newspapers won't say. Well, it started as a bad joke in Kansas City Homicide. They said, this one likes to skin his humps. Uh, Another line, Lecter. Look for severe childhood disturbances associated with violence. Our Billy wasn't born a criminal, Clarice. He was made one through years of systematic abuse. Uh, Dr. Chilton, when the nurse leaned over him, he did this to her, pulls out a photo. The doctors managed to reset her jaw, more or less, saved one of her eyes. His pulse never got above 85, even when he ate her tongue. And then finally, which I'm pretty sure you and I are both going to agree on is the best line, but you know what you look like to me? You're with your good bag and your cheap shoes. You look like a rube, a well-scrubbed hustling rube with little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor white trash, are you, Agent Starling? You see a lot, Doctor, but are you strong enough to point that high-power perception at yourself? What about it? Why don't you, why don't you look at yourself and write down what you see? Or maybe you're afraid to. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and nice Chianti. Yes. You have to add the flair there at the end. Yes, which was an ad lib on his part. So, anyway... um, any okay. other ones you want to nominate? Not really. I mean, 
that's by far the last line is the line. I am in a uh, in a uh, restaurant slash store in Memphis. I mean, uh, excuse me, in New Orleans, off of Bourbon Street. This place is the home of the sandwich called the Muffalata, very famous New Orleans sandwich. They have a bin sitting on the floor of fava beans. And what do they have sitting on the uh, next to the bin? A case of Chianti. It's not by chance. No, it's iconic. Yes. So, because of that, that flair and um, all that goes with it and how uncomfortable you are when he does that. Yes. So, all right. For the honorable mention, uh, as usual, I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Yes. I just thought it was always a good sign-off line. So, all right. So since we're skipping funniest line, we'll go right into the grading. Uh, What did you have down for Legacy? 9.5. Okay. So I probably could be talked a little bit higher on mine. I went 8.5. Where do you, or why did you fall 9.5? Because it set the standard for this type of a film. Um, the the basis of evil is defined by Hannibal. To this day, if you come up and say, man, he's like Hannibal, everybody will know immediately what you're talking about. Uh, yes, I think there is a certain level of still um, pop culture... Um, that's still tied into this. And as you were already saying, I mean, the the iconic moments of this film, the iconic lines um, are still prevalent. I graded it down because over time, I don't think this is as much a part of the cultural lexicon as it was maybe about 10 years ago even. And that as we've gotten further away from it because of the desensitized nature of the culture at large, um, as we've gotten, you know, a lot of these true crime dramas and other things that fiction couldn't live up to some of the other places. And this isn't nearly as terrifying as it once was. So that's the only reason I graded it down. <laughs> Ultimately, it'll average out to a nine on our scale. But, um, oh, but you were going on about how Zodiac caused all these um, podcasts of murders and all this. No, 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 no. This one had the best, biggest impact. Um, yeah. Because this is this is loosely based upon Wisconsin's own Ed Gein. And no, it's yes, not. it is. I'm I'm sorry. How? Thomas Ed Gein Gerth, was a janitor. Thomas Harris, the author, said that he based it. He studied Ed Gein's case and created Lectern in part based on Ed Gein. Maybe his, like, tendencies, his savagery, uh, the ultimate things, but the psychiatrist element of it 
has no. nothing to do with that. No. Ed Gein was a simpleton. Exactly. He had an IQ of in, in borderline mentally or mentally challenged. So, I, like, I, I don't see that at all. The biggest part of this with Lecter is, is not only is he savage, but he's also equally, like, he's smarter than you. Like, that's a huge portion of this character, that he's he's brilliant and he can pick you apart and reduce you down to your um, smallest variables and make you feel like nothing and get inside your head like nobody else. And yet, at a moment's drop, he could end you with very little effort. So... All right, impact significance. Uh, I'm. What did you have down for that one? Um, a nine. I had a nine as well, so that that works out. Uh, again, I'm gonna try and reserve. I probably could have been easily talked up to an, a nine and a half, where I had an inverse level. I think at the time that this came out, this was so part of the cultural lexicon at least through the 90s in the immediate or the immediate nature of this um, film that um, the impact or the significance of it could have been higher. Um, And again, I I think this was one year removed from Goodfellas and um, some other fairly violent crime dramas. And and we kind of got into that through the 90s. Um, But... Other than its cultural tones and that, I don't think there is anything outside of that kind of 10-year rough window where um, anything outside of the certain character performances, its awards history, was felt any more than that. But a nine is pretty significant, so I'll grant it that. Move on? Yep. Okay. Uh, what did you have down for novelty? Eight. Okay. Uh, I had a nine and a half. Was not the first type of film like this. Um, Psycho had been around. Um, we had the whole uh, history of Friday the 13th and... We had the history of um, um, oh, I'm uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, yes, this is more uh, well done, more intellectual, but it still is within the same genre. I would I would say it was not as novel as other films. Okay, and I can buy that. Um, ultimately, the reason why I went nine and a half is, um, while I agree, this isn't the first of these, we already saw a very similar type of movie, at least stylistically, in Taxi Driver, um, kind of that, that type of tone, um, not necessarily the same type of plot line or whatever else, but I will give this credit for a couple of things. One... This is kind of one of those... Um, so The Fugitive came out after this, right? Yes. Okay. 
this is kind of one of those firsts that I can remember, at least from my history of it, not watching it or being part of the history at that time, because this movie is almost as old as I am. But um, this is the first one I can remember where there's really an FBI manhunt type, and that's the main plot of the movie. But, but the other thing is, is and why I gave it uh, huge marks is, I don't think there's another character like Hannibal Lecter in film. Like even no, I, w- I would I will give you that. Uh, and to a certain extent, the way it plays off of his level of um, experience and knowledge base versus the very novice but like innocent Clarice Starling and the just polar opposites that presents. Um, there isn't a relationship like that in film. And there isn't a character like Lecter anywhere else. Even as much as, um, oh, why am I drawing a blank on his name? Uh, the guy who played Psycho is it Anthony Edwards. Anthony Hop or Anthony uh, um, Perkins. Perkins, my bad. Okay, uh, but Anthony Perkins, like there's elements of mental disturbance. This. This is one of the very few where you don't feel like Hannibal is exactly mentally disturbed, that he's just this way. Like, there doesn't seem to be an indicating force that he's been screwed up in some way because of that intelligence line, and that he's kind of playing puppet master to everything else that's going around. Uh, It's the one real remaining question I have for this movie is... um, why the hell is he even in prison to begin with? Like, he's seemingly being able to see it all and make chess moves around everybody else. Did he allow himself to get caught? Or what exactly happened to even get him in that situation to begin with? Red Dragon explains that as a prequel. And uh, it it just got to the point where, even though he's uh, really intelligent, even the most intelligent people get sloppy over time. And that, if I remember right, that's what ended up happening. Um, the question I had, and I thought I had to think about it and then remembered why. And then when I read the synopsis of the prequel, Hannibal Rising, um, I remembered why. Because the question I had was, is why was he talking to Starling? I mean, what, what about her caused it? And, um, and and quite frankly, um, in the book, it makes clear that the reason Starling was selected was not necessarily because she was such a great student, because but that she physically um, was reminiscent of Lecter's uh, sister who was cannibalized. Ah. Uh. Well, they really don't say that in the movie. So I, I know we're filling in a few gaps that um, most people don't often have, um, which I think, you know, that's not exactly spoilers per se. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Okay. So you're okay with an 8.75 then for uh, novelty? Sure. As the average out? All right. Again, I mean, we're, we're giving this one pretty high marks. So classicness? Um, you know what, in the moment now, I think this is actually, other than the one knock that I had against it, where, like, there isn't a 
significant person of diversity in this entire movie. Um, that's like the one major knock. Even the one scene where, um, you know, I think they were a little bit ahead of their time in that particular thing. So they go into the, um, what is it, funeral parlor in Tennessee, and Crawford's uh, trying to excuse himself with the funeral director because they don't want to talk about horrific things in front of a woman. And she confronts him about it a little bit in the car later on. I mean, how many movies were you getting in that 20 years ago? I mean, 20 years ago, we were still trying to have the Thomas Clarence hearings. Or Clarence, Clarence Thomas. Thomas. Yes, I, I mixed, I transposed that. Yes, I understand. Okay, and I understand your thoughts of diversity and the need for diversity and such. Well, let's also face facts. I lived in that era. And you weren't going to find a huge number of minorities um, in the FBI training pool at, at Quantico. It wasn't happening. Because but the police forces that were involved in this movie or like prison guards or anything else. Even then. Even then. I don't even think that. one of the co-prisoners was a black man. Like – in what prison do you have four prisoners and at least one of them isn't black? And I, I don't mean to say that as like, you know, a stereotype, just as the reality that they make up a significant portion the of the fact is, is they went out of their way to not put black people in here for the stereotype. Okay. And I, I guess I can buy that. Again, I think this movie was somewhat self-aware in that particular element, it's just that one small knock. So I, I again, I had it as a nine and a half. What did you have? I had a nine and a half. Oh, By the way, okay. just so you remember, I mean, how many times have you seen a, a commercial or something that shows? And there's one right now um, um, for uh, Identity Lock. It's the guy wearing a mask. He's a he's a thief. You know, of course they're always going to be they always put all crooks in tv anymore as white because if they put it as anything else then it's being racist they go yeah. out of their way they go okay. out of their way to not look like they're being racist you honestly don't need to add that point um because it, it could be taken the wrong way. I'll, I'll just say that much. I'm not intending it to be put taken the wrong way. I'm just saying that that there's a certain element where diversity is not necessarily something you want to necessarily have in all aspects. Because we've had such stereotypes previously. That's true. I'll, I'll grant that, that. We have to go the other way in order to overcome the stereotypes. Well, I like that is criticism that's been levied on a few more modern films that are much more racially diverse, but then try and take on sloppily, I might add, um, racial topics, notably uh, the movie Crash, where like one of the major criticisms of that movie is, is that they just ham-handedly uh, steer into every racial stereotype and reinforce every single one of them. But anyway, I, that, We'll get to that movie at a different time. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, um, all right, rewatchability. Uh, I added as a six. 
and I, I'm trying to play around with this one a little <laughs> bit as we go along. Again, these ca- categories are still evolving, um, being in our first season and all, but um, this is one that I would rewatch, and I have now, but it's not one I'm going back to. But I don't have a problem with, like, pulling this out and, um, you know, maybe enjoying watching this movie. Like, I I think it's a a little bit above last week's movie where um, it was a little too long. It was a little too drawn out. This one is, it seems pretty tight. The, it never really loses its pace, um, and it flows at least well enough that um, it doesn't seem like a slog at times, whereas some of these movies we've watched even to this point already have their moments where they just drag. And I know you've commented on that individually. So um, yes. I, I certainly wouldn't have a rewatchability issue. I just, with the subject material, it's not one I'm going to like pop in in order to take a nap to. Let's put it this way. The way I look at the whole rewatchability and whatever, um, I consider it the movie version of mac and cheese. The comfort food. Okay? Right. It's something, if I'm having a bad day, I'm going to go. If I'm turning through the TV and I just need something to just make me feel better or make me feel, you know, relax myself... This is not what I'm turning to. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's just not. I have to be in the right frame of mind. So if I'm turning to go, oh, it's a great film. I'm not watching it now. Okay. To that extent, I give it a 6.5 simply because it is a film that if I had to, if I had a um, movie virgin who uh, needs to be brought up on on movie classic movies this right. is a film that i would recommend i would sit and watch i would this is a film that every few years i should watch again just because of the the uh stellar performances in it um so that's why i had 6.5 i do think and this was a, a question we used to ask regularly you know i think this will be in the kind of must-see category area of the list when we're all th- things are all said and done. Um, but it's not one that, like I said, I think the the 10s on there are going to be the movies I've rewatched so many times that or that I'm so comfortable with that I can literally take a nap during them because I can wake up at any point and know exactly what's going on. Monty Python's The Holy Grail that I can yeah. quote all the lines. No, um, it's a wonderful life. Um, Dodgeball, um, Blazing Saddles, the Avengers yes. movies, uh, Batman. You know, all those, of those are your movies. comfort films. I understand, but... I, and that's that's why we have two people minimum on each one of these. I, I don't think we'll ever get to the point where we have a solo podcast, uh, but you know, maybe it'll happen. Uh, ultimately, I'm just saying. Six for me. Who did you have, or what did you have as your? I said six point five. Okay, so we'll go with a six point two five to kind of round that out. I missed your score then. Oh well, it's all right. I understand if you weren't listening. Yep, you know me. So anyway, uh, 
that uh, puts us at a overall score of an even 52. And don't have it immediately up, which is weird. I should have had it up. This, um, let's just put it this way. If um, Back to the Future is still in the lead after this, we need to revisit Back to the Future. Um, back. This actually comes in uh, after we scored it at number five so it's actually really? behind yes no which i wouldn't have thought immediately or originally but um back to the future is still number one the best years of our lives is number two very very slightly uh pulp fiction three groundhog day four and then silence of the lambs so this one comes in just ahead of some like it hot okay but not bad actually this is uh episode number 21 i'm I was mistaken earlier in the podcast saying that this was uh, episode number 20. Okay. But not bad. I'll take it. So. All right. So, um, last pieces of housekeeping – We always encourage everybody, it's like Uber, give us five stars. Um, Four stars will even do so that other people can find the podcast um, and uh, we can keep um, going forward. Um, If you need to, I have some snack crackers in the back seat to get the five star. Oh, yeah, okay. Anyway, uh, otherwise, uh, we will be back again next week doing ET. Uh, I have not um, set what anything. What does that stand for, by the way? Extraterrestrial. It's part um, of the movie title. Oh. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, but after that, we have not yet decided our. Uh, three remaining, or I guess two remaining, uh, episodes before we get to number 25, our big one yet. Um, we have yet to announce that one as well, uh, but... Oh, uh, aren't we not going to announce it? Well, if you'd like to. Well, we could. There's nothing that prevents us. It's our show. I will let you take that, then. Ah, well, it's this is true comfort. This is mac and cheese to me. One of, or probably one of my favorite westerns of all time, if not one of my favorite films of all time. Not for any reason in particular. It's Rio Bravo. John Wayne, Dean Martin, Ricky Nelson, Ward Bond, Walter Brennan. And uh, we'll get to it eventually on the episode. This one has um, a lot of intrinsic value to both you and I. And there are so many pieces because you used to watch this movie all the time when I was a kid. And um, there are there are a lot of pieces where I, I just have very fun memories of watching this movie. So um, if uh, anybody needs to find it, it is on the new HBO Max. Um, E.T. for next week is on Netflix. So you can find it there. 
If you, uh, by the way, if you, we just found this out by happenstance. If you have Dish or um, any cable TV provider or any cable provider where you pay to have uh, HBO and or and Cinemax or I think either one, um, you can get HBO Max streaming service by signing in through your um, internet or your uh, satellite or cable provider. Yes, they are doing away with HBO Go and uh, and rebranding HBO Now um, as services. HBO Now is going to be like just the HBO um, like reduced version of pay for stream. So, um, but those will still be uh, or those are changing as we go forward. But HBO Max, uh, I found quite a few things already to try and watch and get through on some of my personal watching projects for that. So. Uh, otherwise, uh, we will be back, like I said, next week. Um, and uh, as always, I wish we could chat longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Thanks, everybody, and have a great week.